Let's pray as we come to God's word as we always do. Holy Spirit, you inspired this word. You inspired the writers of this word. And God, you've given me a word for this morning. And I pray, Lord, that you would help me to communicate it with clarity, with conviction, and with compassion to your people. Lord, that you would prophetically inspire me, even as uh, I have prepared, Lord, to speak what you want to say into people's lives. And Lord, that you would challenge us, convict us, convert us, and, and change us to be more like Jesus, your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. I have two appointments to make in the next week that I uh, don't like making. The first one I've been putting off for seven years, and that is a visit to the dentist. I know. They'll be glad to see me, won't they? Um, I literally have not been in the dentist since I, I served in Shankill Lurgan. Um, which was at least uh, probably eight years since I've been to the dentist. My theory with the dentist has always been I don't go to the doctor just you know, every six months just to see how I am so I don't go to the dentist unless I have to, but I, I'm sensing that I probably should at this stage. And the other one is I need to book an MOT for what used to be my car, um, which I kindly donated to my wife recently because I got an upgraded version. Um, but uh, I, I, I hate the MOT. Anybody else, like... Yeah, like I hate it. Like it's one of those few places that I get really nervous and like sweat. Like I, I, I and especially that you know the bit where you have to drive down into that dip. Yeah, and you're like, why did like that's going to wreck my car? And they test the brakes, and like I get really, really nervous. I get so flustered, you forget where your lights are. Yeah, <laughs> have you ever done that? Especially with fog lights. I mean, I haven't had my fog lights on in five years. Like, and he's like, put on your fog lights, and you're starting to fumble about, feeling like a complete fool, and uh, and you just feel like an idiot. I, I don't enjoy the MOT. The last time we MOT'd this car, I mean, this car is twelve years old. It's got one hundred and sixty thousand miles on it. So you're always thinking, this is not going to go great. Um, and the last time I did it, I remember, it was in Korea. It was just before we left the North Coast last September. And I was panicking because I just was thinking there's going to be work needed to be done to this. And we didn't want to do it. And, uh, and I drove up to the Lane 4 in Korea MOT. And the, the guy came out to, to direct me in and wasn't at a smiling guy from the church that I was helping lead. I mean, that's just a dream right there. Do you know what I mean? I was like Jehovah Jireh. You know, I started speaking in tongues. I did a dance around the car. And, uh, and I passed uh, because he knew I would call out his sins from the front of church the following week. Uh, that guy with the bald head is adultery. And, uh, but, uh, so we passed. But this time, I don't think I have any such inside uh, contacts. But... Uh, Afterwards, after you go to the dentist for a checkup or after you do an MOT, there's that kind of sense of satisfaction. You know that everything, if you pass or if you don't have any, you know, you know you're okay. It's a bit like a medical checkup. If you know you're okay and there's something very satisfying about knowing that your car is roadworthy, that it is not, that the engine is not going to drop out or it's not going to go on fire or something terrible is not going to happen because I want my, my wife who drives it to be safe. I want my son who drives in it, not drives it, to be safe, although he may be a better driver. But uh, I know, I know, I know, I know. I couldn't help. Oh, I, I thought that was her purse. It would be the first time I've seen that in eight years. Um, she's throwing things at me, those listening online. Um, but, uh, 
But uh, yeah, I, I want them to feel. I want to know that they're safe. I and I bought uh, when we moved here. I bought myself a new car. I bought it off Facebook from someone in Tyrone. Which I and so when I went through the first MOT there, that was nervous as well. You know, when you buy something off Facebook from someone in Tyrone, if you're from Tyrone, I'm thinking about everybody else. Um, but you just you get a little bit nervous. <laughs> I can feel the frost. Um, you get a little bit nervous, you know, and especially when they say a lucky penny. There's something about a lucky penny down there that, you know, he's, and, and, and that's how a deal's done, a handshake and a lucky penny. And to me, it's a grace penny. I don't know, but, um, but I got through that MOT. But you're glad that your car, what I'm trying to get at, your car is safe because we like safety. There's something about safety that we like. I know that... There's some crazy people out there who do unsafe things on purpose. People who bungee jump. Anybody ever bungee jump? I would have guessed, Stuart. Anybody else? Yeah, I would have guessed you too. You can kind of pick them, can't you? And um, they just have that crazy look in their eyes. Um, the most of us, the rest, you know, people who jump out of planes and. Uh, and, and do extreme sports. The rest of us are, are kind of sensible, sane creatures who, who like being alive and, and who want to maintain our lives. Um, and we, we, you know, safety is a big thing. We, we're big into safety in our culture. We have airbags in our cars, we have alarms in our houses, we have safety gates for our ch- young children, we have risk assessments on buildings, we have baggage scans in airports. We even have to take our shoes off um, now in airports because one person decided to put bombs in his shoes 12 years ago. We have peanut allergy warnings on our food vaccinations against disease, hand sanitizer, warnings on hot cup of coffee to tell us that it is hot, Um, filtered water, health insurance, car insurance, life insurance, house insurance, pet insurance. Anybody got their pet insured? Yeah, goodness me. I thought that was just like one of those mythical things you hear about. Um, And uh, I'm just going to keep moving because I've offended two-thirds of you already and there's only a third to go. Um, but we're big into safety. Safety is important, and most of the time, that is a good thing. But what if we are so consumed with safety, we are so consumed with preserving uh, ourselves, we are so consumed with remaining uh, comfortable that we never, ever live and step into the fullness of the destiny and the calling that God has for us. It could be that the greatest danger might not be dying of boredom, or not dying in a horrible accident, but dying of boredom. It might not be dying, but it could be that we never lived at all. Remember that movie Braveheart, where they, they, he shouts, every man dies, but not every man really lives. Sometimes I feel that for the church. Every Christian dies, but not every Christian really lives. Not every Christian really enjoys the abundant life, because Jesus calls us into risky places. The life of faith, the life of following Jesus, no matter what you might have been brought up to believe, is not a nice, comfortable life where you go to church on a Sunday, do your one hour, pray your prayers and go home to your nice, comfortable existence. It is a life of risk. It is a life of faith. John Wimber, who started the Vineyard Church, said, faith is spelt R-I-S-K. It is a life where God calls us into dangerous places. He calls us into dark places with his light. He calls us into risky places with his love. He calls us into the places of the world that most people don't want to go into to bring his love to people who are dangerous and into dark things. And he calls us into impossibility to do things that terrifies us. That's why the most common phrase in the Bible is do not fear. 
Because every time God shows up, he says, do not fear, and then tells you to do something that absolutely terrifies you. That is the way God works. Have you ever heard Christians say this? And I've probably said it myself. There's no safer place than the will of God. There's no safer place than the center of God's will. And in one sense, I believe that. And in another sense, I absolutely think it's rubbish. And I think if the Apostle Paul, I mean, if there's somebody who was probably in the will of God, it's the guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. It's the Apostle Paul who brought the gospel to the nations. And you look at what Paul says about being in God's will in the book of Second Corinthians. He says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and have been exposed to death again and again. Five times I have received from the Jews 40, the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I've been beaten by rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger in Lurgan, in danger at sea, and in danger, that's the message version, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I feel face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Does that sound like the safest place to be is the center of God's will? No. For him, it meant danger, it meant trouble, it meant opposition, it meant affliction. I think we need to get away from this place where Christ calls us to comfort. He does not. I love what Chris Vallotton says. Chris Vallotton from Bethel says this, God is not as interested in keeping you safe as he is in interest, as he is in keeping you from a meaningless life. That's good, isn't it? He's not as interested in keeping you safe as he is in a, as, as he is in keeping you from a meaningless life. And so, following God is not meant to be safe. It is not meant to be about wrapping ourselves in a religious bubble, hunkering down, keeping ourselves from the big bad world out there and just praying for Jesus to come back and that we'll just maintain things until he does. It is, a, it is about advancement. It is about moving forward. It is about boldness. It is about taking risks. It is about taking territory for his kingdom. It is about pressing into dark places with his light and removing the darkness and establishing his kingdom wherever we go and to do that we need courage. I love we saw this a few weeks ago in, in Acts chapter 4. Remember when the Christians have healed the, the, the lame man and they've been persecuted and they're told not to do it again by the very same people who have crucified Jesus only six weeks before and they don't pray for safety. They don't pray that God would protect them. They pray for Boldness. Look at what they say in Acts 4.29. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. That's what I pray for myself. That I will not be timid. That I will not shrink back in a culture that tells us to water it down. Just take it easy. Let's not offend anyone. Let's not. Let's let, let's let's keep everything PC. Let's be tolerant of everything. Lord, let me preach your word with boldness. We need bold men and women in our culture who are not afraid to stand up for truth, whatever may happen. Who are not afraid to declare God's will, whatever may happen. Who are not afraid to say this book is God. 
God's inspired word. You might not agree with it, but you do not stand over it. It stands over you. This is what we need at this time in our culture. Not Christians who are who are who have no backbone, who are who are shrinking from the darkness, or capitulating to culture, who are saying, Well, we want to we want everyone to like us, so let's just water it all down. No, we need bold Christians who say, Bring it on. Bring it on. We're ready for you. Bring it on. Because we have God on our side. We have a spirit within us. We have his mandate upon us. And we're going out there in boldness. And so we're going to see that this morning. All of that was the introduction. But we hopefully will not be here too long. I promise you that is my intention this week. We're looking for Samuel 14. Let me give you some context. Saul has been made king. First king of Israel. And to be quite honest, things aren't going great for him. But like that first month in work when everything stops, starts going really badly. And uh, you're thinking this might not last too long. Saul, Saul's had two big problems. And actually they were connected. He was a people pleaser. He was always more concerned with what people thought than with what God thought. And that came from his other problem which was deep insecurity. And the two are very much often tied together. That deep insecurity leads to people pleasing. That when we're not secure in who we are and in who God has called us to be, we tend to mold our lives to the culture around us. He's been making bad decisions because he's more concerned with what the people think than with what God thinks. And God basically tells him in the previous chapter, your days are numbered. Look at what it says in 1 Samuel 13. I'll just read the middle bit. Now your kingdom will not endure. Will not endure. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart because you have not kept the Lord's commandments. God cannot have leaders leading his people who are more concerned with pleasing the people, and they are with pleasing him. And that has been one of the biggest obstacles and enemies of the church. That we have ministers, pastors, rectors, whatever you call it, who are more intimidated and concerned with pleasing five or ten vocal people who have strong opinions than they are with pleasing God. That's how hope came into existence, by the way. That there was a rector who wasn't. And we thank God for him. But God cannot use a leader who is more concerned with the opinions of man than with the opinions of God. And it's very hard for God to use any Christian who is more concerned with the opinions of people and peers than they are with the opinion of God. And so God says, look, I I can't do anything with you. You keep capitulating to the will of the people because of your insecurity again and again. And as if this isn't bad enough, the Philistines, Israel's greatest enemies, are attacking from all angles. They're destroying them. They're ravaging them. They're, de- they're, they're decimating them. They've confiscated all of the Israelite weapons to the point where we read this in 1322. Not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. The whole army had two weapons to share among them. 
Imagine sending the troops into Iraq or Afghanistan and you know you send in like 2,000 soldiers and, and, and every day you toss a coin to see who's going to get the two guns today. Like that's kind of what it's like. It doesn't fill you with a lot of confidence. It's a picture of desperation and despair, defenseless and vulnerability. And the worst bit is this. We read this about Saul. Saul was the military leader. Saul was the king. Saul was the one who should have been inspiring them, motivating them, standing up, saying, guys, we can do this. Let's press forward. Let's advance. God is with us. This is what we read about him in verses 2 and 3. Saul was standing on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree. There's those who will always move to the middle, and there's those who will stay on the outskirts on the fringes. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was Ichabod's brother, Ahitub, son of that guy, son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. So Saul and his 600 troops who are with him aren't strategizing for battle. They're not making weapons from trees or from wood. They're not practicing their hand-to-hand combat. We have no weapons, but we can fight with our fists. What are they doing? They're camping under a tree. They're sitting there in the shade, paralyzed by passivity, but they're trying to look spiritual at the same time because look at what it says. We read about this guy, Ahijah, who's the priest, and it says he's wearing an ephod. If you go through the Old Testament, the ephod was brought out when the people of God needed to know God's will. The priest put on the ephod at different times when God's will wasn't clear and God revealed his will. Somehow it was like a breastplate, but somehow we don't really know how it was. Somehow through this garment called the ephod, God revealed his will and told them what to do. So here's Saul with 600 men under a tree, trying to look spiritual, trying to look like he's seeking God's will. Lord, What do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? God, what's your will for my life? But the problem was this, that God had already revealed his will to Saul. Because if you look back when Saul was called in 1 Samuel chapter 9, this is what it says about him. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. That was Saul's calling as king. To deliver the people from the hand of the Philistines. He's called to fight to lead the people into the battle that the Lord is going to give them. So he's under a pomegranate tree having a prayer meeting. Trying to look spiritual when actually he's... All he is doing is procrastinating, disobeying God and putting off what God has already told him to do. I'm all for prayer. I, I want us to be a praying church. We are a praying church. I want us to be more a praying church. We've seen the fruit of prayer this week. David Parks is out of hospital. He's in France. A week ago, honestly, like it was pretty bad. We have been praying and interceding for him, and he is so thankful. We are a praying church, and I always want us to be a praying church. But sometimes we can use prayer as a way of avoiding obedience. Prayer can become an excuse for passivity and inactivity of resisting God's will rather than doing God's will. We've all done it. I have done it. Somebody asks us out of the blue to do something in church and we haven't thought about it and we haven't a good enough reason on the spot to say no or we're not uh, or we're too scared to say no. And so we say, 
I'll pray about it and get back to you. And you know what that really means? Over the next week, I won't think about it too much at all. I'll definitely not pray about it because God might want me to do it. But I'll come back in a week and say, I don't feel led to that particular ministry. We have all done it. We have, we have spiritualized our disobedience. We have spiritualized our passivity. I'm being slightly facetious, but I have done it myself. Sometimes we pray about stuff that God has already made clear. And when we do that, we're spiritualizing our disobedience. Let me share one or two things I've heard over the years. That guy or girl who says, you know, I know I shouldn't be dating this person because they're all wrong for me and they don't share any aspect of my faith and they'll never come to church with me. But maybe God has brought us together just so I can lead them to him. And their granny went to church six months ago, so there's faith in their family. I mean, the rubbish I have heard over the years, folks, you have no idea. When people come to me with looking advice about stuff like that, I, I don't give it anymore because here's what I've discovered. They've already their minds made up. They're just looking at me to confirm to them what they want to do. And if they don't, they'll go to somebody else. Or what about the person who, who says this? I, I know I shouldn't be doing this, and this is the one I have done when I was in my late teens, early 20s. I know I shouldn't be doing this and I know I shouldn't be going there. But by doing it, I'm showing my non-Christian friends that Christians can have fun too. What you're really showing them is that Christianity and your faith means absolutely nothing to you whatsoever. We don't win the world by being like the world. We win the world by being different to the world. Not weird, but different. Or what about this one? I know I've never told anybody that I'm a Christian and I have never ever shared my faith, but my lifestyle I'm sure is making an impact. And didn't Jesus say, share the gospel at all times and if necessary use words? No, Jesus did not say that. Jesus was too busy preaching the gospel using words to say that. Yes, We do demonstrate the kingdom through our actions. We back up our words. But time and time again it says preach the gospel. Share the good news. Tell people. Go and make disciples. When God has made things clear, you do not need to pray for clarity. If God has made things clear in here, you do not need to pray for clarity. You need to pray for boldness and obedience and courage. Because you already know what to do. You just need the courage to do it. So let me ask you. What do you know you should be doing that you're not doing right now? Like deep down, we all have those things in our lives that God has been speaking to us about for a long time. But we're putting them off or we're saying, I'm I'm praying about it. What are you praying about that you're actually just using prayer to avoid something? That's too convicting, so let's keep moving on. Uh, Let's jump back to verse 1 just for a second. One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, come, let us go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul, or Jonathan, is, is tired of sitting around. He's got young blood in him, and he's tired of watching all these guys sitting under the tree. And he says to his armor bearer, who really doesn't have a lot of work to do right now because they've got no armor, Let's call him the servant. He says to him, let's do something. Come with me. We're going to do something. Notice it says he didn't tell his father. Why? Because his father would have said no. 
His father would have said, don't do it. Because his father's greatest goal at that stage was to keep his head down, not cause any trouble, not, not upset anyone. His father's greatest goal was just to survive and maintain what they had. And the other thing is this. When one person steps out in boldness, it makes everybody else look bad. They say this about, if you have a bucket of crabs, and, and one crab tries to climb to the top, all the other crabs, you know what they do? They pull them back down again. Because they don't want them to escape. If we're all going to be stuck here, you're going to be stuck with us. And our culture does something like that. As soon as you try to step out and make a difference and do something bold and do something for God, some people around you will go, you'll never do that. That's not going to work. And they're trying to pull you down. Why? Because they want to sit on their blessed assurance and do nothing. And they're very comfortable there and you doing something will make them look bad. Saul was a spiritual spectator. Instead of playing to win, he was playing not to lose. And when you play not to lose, you'll never win. And that's what separated Saul from Jonathan. Saul wanted things to be different, but he wanted his life to stay the same. And that's convicting. Because there's so many times in my life, I want things to be different. I want circumstances to be different. I want situations around me to be different, but I don't want to change. I want everyone else to change and everything else to change, but I want to stay the same. Jonathan, on the other hand, knew this, that nothing happens until something happens. That it takes initial force to put things in motion. If you sit and do nothing, nothing changes. If you do what you've always done, you'll get what you've always got. And the best way to change your circumstances is take action. It's to do something. Even if it's risky, even if it's uncomfortable, even if no one else is doing it, even if it might not work. Craig Rochelle, who's a pastor in in the States, says this. The difference between where you are and where God wants you to be may be the painful decision you refuse to make. Isn't that true? I thought about this about a year ago in my own life, but just some struggles and some things that I kept coming up against. And I realized this, that nearly every issue in my life boiled down to two or three decisions that I wasn't willing to make. That if I were to commit to two or three changes in my life, my life would radically change. That could be around finances for you. It could be around relationships. It could be about how you speak to people or about people. It could be about how you handle your money. If you change two or three things, it could be about what you watch, what you look at. So many of our problems that consume 80% of our lives can be attributed to about 5% of the things we do in our life. But the impact they have is overwhelmingly proportional. And if we were to change two or three things, everything would change. So Saul's praying, and while Saul's praying over there, Jonathan's obeying. While Saul and his 600 men are trying to figure out the will of God, 
Jonathan and his armor bearer are, are working out the will of God. And we need to know that when we step out in courage, not everyone is going to go with you. There were 602 people and 600 were over there and two were over here. When you follow Jesus, don't expect to be in the majority. And don't expect the majority to be right. We live in a culture where we assume if the majority think it, it must be right. Folks, the majority are most often wrong. Because Jesus said that the gate is narrow. That leads to eternal life. And if we follow the majority, we will probably not be following Jesus because he walks us down a narrow road. And so don't be consumed by what our culture thinks. Be consumed by what God thinks. And most often God works through the few. When he wants something done, God rarely calls together a crowd or a committee. He calls together one or two people who he knows who are going to be faithful to him and he gives him a call to do. He gives him a command. Look at verses 4 to 6. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Sena. One cliff stood to the north towards Michmash and the other towards the south towards Geba. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. So it says this, that Jonathan and his armor bearer, they have cliffs at either side of them. And look, it actually names the cliffs. Bozes. Do you know what Bozes means? Slippery. Senna. Thorny. They're in between a thorny and a slippery place. That's where the will of God is sometimes for you. It's in the place where you're most vulnerable. We were talking about this in the prayer meeting this morning. That sometimes God puts us in a thorny, vulnerable place. A slippery, vulnerable place. Because he knows that it's only when we come to the end of ourselves that we will rely completely on him. A thorny place, a slippery place. In other words, this is impossible by human strength. Again, as Christians, we say stuff like this. I knew it must have been God's will because it all just fell into place. I've said that too. It just all fell into place. It must have been the Lord. And sometimes that happens. And I love it when it happens. And sometimes everything just falls into place. But don't assume that because everything fell into place, it's the Lord's will. And don't assume because everything's not fallen into place that it's the Lord's will. Because sometimes when you try to do the Lord's will, all of hell will come against you. And you will have to fight battles and go through storms and face opposition. But that doesn't mean it's not the Lord's will. It just means what's at the other side is even better. So don't assume that because it's hard, it can't be God. And Jonathan isn't put off by the obstacles in his way, by the thorny place and the slippery place. Look at what he says to his armor bearer. Come, let's go to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord by saving, whether by many or by few. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Perhaps. Perhaps. I love that. He says, let's go pick a fight. 
I know there's more of them than us, and I know that they've got the high ground. But perhaps, perhaps God will come through. It doesn't say he's prayed about it. It doesn't say that he woke up that morning and there was an angel river dancing on his duvet saying, go get the Philistines. He says, let's just try this out. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? We could die a horrible, gruesome death. And yet with all the uncertainty, Jonathan has a massive certainty because look at what he says. And this is the verse I woke up with in my head this morning. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Nothing can hinder the Lord. Some of you need to hear that this morning in your circumstance. For what's coming against you, nothing can hinder the Lord. This thing might look big. It might look overwhelming. It might look impossible. It might look insurmountable. It might look and feel like it's all consuming. Nothing can hinder the Lord. In other words, this is what he's saying. I know God can do it. I just don't know if he will do it. Do you see it? Come let us go. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. I don't know if he can do it. Or I don't know. I know he can do it. I just don't know if he will do it. Do you ever feel like that? I I know I do all the time. Like when I pray for the sick. I know the Lord can heal them. I just don't know if he will heal them. When you talk to your friend about faith or pray for them, I know Jesus can save them. I just don't know if he will. I know God could get me this job. I just don't know if he will. I know God could fix my marriage. I just don't know if he will. I know God could sort out this relationship that's fractured and fallen apart. I just don't know if he will. I know God could, but I just don't know if he will. It's that tension. I have a promise from God about his nature, his character, but I also have a perhaps. And life is lived in that tension between the promises of God and the perhapses of reality. Life is lived in that place where I go, I know God can, but I don't know if he will. But I'm going to try it anyway. What's the opposite of hot? It's not a trick question. What's the opposite of loud? Quiet. What's the opposite of faith? I would always have said doubt. You know what I've thought about? That maybe, maybe the opposite of faith isn't doubt. Maybe the opposite of faith is certainty. If I have certainty, I do not need faith. If I am absolutely, and they always use the example of the chair. You have faith when you sit in the chair that the chair alone. I don't need faith to sit in that chair. I look at that chair. I've tested that chair. I have certainty about that chair. Maybe the opposite of faith isn't doubt. Maybe it's certainty. Because when you're certain, you don't need faith. But it's in the uncertainty that you need faith. It's in the perhaps. It's in the perhaps. You know, I, I don't think I've ever been 100% certain about any of the decisions I have made as a leader. That fills you with confidence, doesn't it? Eh? <laughs> Honestly, 
I stand up here with my boldness and bravado and act the big lad. I have probably at best, at the very best decisions, been 90%. Most of the time I'm 50 to 75%. Last week I got up and proclaimed and pronounced from the front that we're not going to start a new service in September. We're going to start it in January. And I sounded so confident. Do you know why? Because that's what I have to do. Because if I were to get up and be fumbling, do you know where that decision came from, folks? It came from sitting with Liz Neal on Thursday at her house after her bereavement of her mum. And from Friday going to the funeral and sitting with Christine McElvain and having a conversation at the funeral. And on both of those occasions as I walked away, I felt, the Lord, I felt, I sensed the Lord say, hold off to January. That was it. I could be completely wrong or I could be right. That one's a 50-50 one, folks, just so you know. I'm 50%. But you know what? What's the worst that can happen? Like really, the world will keep spinning Hopefully you'll keep coming. Sometimes you just need to make a call. But here's the thing. I was so uncertain and so afraid of fully committing to doing it in September that I was holding back and holding back and holding back. And so I just went, you know what? I'm going to go no to September, yes to January. If I'm wrong, you know what? We can try it in November. If I'm wrong, we don't do it in January. We do it in March. If I'm wrong, that's okay. Folks, I will stand up here and go, I was wrong. Do it, Jimmy Becker, Jimmy Swagger, or whatever one that did that, you know. Hopefully not for the same reasons. I was wrong. (laughs) But I'm happy to do that. What I'm trying to communicate to you is, as certain as I sound sometimes, I'm not always certain. I've very rarely been 100% certain. God never told me to marry Becky. Ever. I never had a word from God to marry this girl. I liked how she looked. She loved Jesus. And I thought, if I can get her, I'm doing okay for myself. Don't tell her. (laughs) God didn't. If you have to pray that much about somebody, they're probably not right. I'm just telling you. That's making a few couples uncomfortable right now. But if it is that hard... And if you're constantly praying about it, it's probably you know the answer. You're just afraid to pull the trigger. Oh, I need to keep moving. I'm getting into trouble here. But life has lived between the promise and the perhaps. It's between the tension of what you know about God and the reality of life. The miracle is often in the maybe. And sometimes all you have is a perhaps. Look at verse 7. I'm going to... I'm going to fly through the last one, I promise you. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead and I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, come on then, we will cross over towards them and let them see us. If they said, us, wait there, we will come to you. We will stay where we are, not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up. Because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. This is not the best military strategy. Now, I am not in the SAS. You might think I am. I am not. I promise you. But this is not a great military strategy because the enemy has the high ground. And I don't need to be read all the Andy McNabb books to know that you do not want to be in the low ground. You want to be in the high ground because that gives the the enemy a greater advantage. If they're looking down on you and you're looking up at them, they're probably going to win. 
So how could you expect to defeat the Philistines? Climbing thorny and slippery. They've got one sword. If you're going to climb thorny and slippery, it's likely you're going to need two hands. The sword's going to be in your back or it's going to be left behind. Jonathan's plan is not a clearly thought out tactical mission here. But it's better than doing nothing. He's more committed to doing what's right than doing what's easy. Verse 11. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Luke said the Philistines, the Hebrews, are crawling out of their holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, Come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet and with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. So they get the sign that they want. They climb up the cliff and they kill 20 Philistines with one sword. Two men kill 20 Philistines. God came through on their behalf. God backed up their boldness. God affirmed their audacity. They moved and God moved. One of the things I've been saying a lot recently, and I'm going to keep saying, when we move, God moves. God will, you do the things that, that you can do and let God do the things that you can't do. I had it again this week with my little boy. Daddy, you put on my shoes. And I go, Elijah, if you can do it, I won't do it. I'll help you with the things you can't do. And that's what God says to us. We're going, God, would you help me with this? And God's going, no. I've given you everything you need to do it. If you can do it, I won't do it. But where I'll step in is with the stuff that you can't do. You do the possible, I'll do the impossible. You do the ordinary, I'll do the extraordinary. You do the natural, I'll make it supernatural. Saul was passively waiting on God while God was working through Jonathan. One of my issues, and I'm getting better actually at it, is road rage. I'm just being honest. I think actually the spirit is transferring more to, to Bex recently. She seems to have it more than I have. That's all right. I'm just saying how beautiful you are. She didn't hear that. Just telling her how beautiful she is. Um, she was distracted. Um, but I, I, I do get angry on the road sometimes, especially with slow drivers. Um, and especially when you're in a rush somewhere and you're, you pull up at traffic lights and they're red and you're behind somebody and you're really in a rush, like you're cutting it fine and the light goes and you're waiting and you're, f- you're footing the accelerator and you're waiting for it to turn green and it turns green and you're about to move forward and the car in front of you doesn't budge. Yeah, I feel, I feel, yeah. Can I get an amen? I should have left earlier. You be quiet. <laughs> You're exactly right, but I should have left earlier. And the driver shouldn't have been so slow either. Um, Who is this? (laughs) You're very welcome. Um, But I do, and I I, I go, the light's green, as if they can hear me. How much more green do you want it to be? And then I realize that somebody from church, I'm like, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. And I feel sometimes God's doing that with us. We're like, Lord, lead me. Will you guide me? Will you direct? And God's going, the light is green. 
What are you waiting for? Go, go, go. Like what more do you need? I have given you everything that you need. You just need to move forward. Jonathan moved with God and God moved with Jonathan. Jonathan became a warrior for God and God became a warrior for Jonathan. And the tables turn in that moment. Verse 15. Then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and field, those in the outpost and raiding parties. The ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. I said this last week and I said again that life is just made up of moments. And not all moments are created equal. Life is made up of moments and minutes, and most of them are insignificant. But there are those moments and those minutes that change your future, that change everything that happens after them. That your life is, there's a line between before that moment and after that moment, and this is one of those moments, and that's why it's in the Bible. That there are those moments that you don't even realize them at the time, but they shape everything that happens after that. 20 years ago, I was in the cafeteria in Jordanstown having my regular cup of coffee with six of my classmates from my degree. And somebody at the table happened to mention about a a, a graduate marketing course called Explorers that you can go and travel with. And my ears perked up and it was meant to be for six months and I spent two years in the States. And it changed my life. But you know what? That started by me just being in a cafeteria in a moment. It was just a moment, but it has changed it so much in my life. This past week, one year ago this past week, we had a moment where we clandestinely met with a couple from this church to ask questions. We weren't supposed to be meeting them, but we had asked to meet them, and they were kind enough to meet us because we were just starting to sense that the Lord might be calling us here. And so we met them at the back and we asked them a lot of questions and we were kind of wanting them to tell us the wrong things so that we could go justify going, no, it's not for us. And we walked out of here and we looked at each other in that moment and we went, that's for us. But it was just a moment. It seemed not that significant at the time, but it's changed everything for us. Those moments that seemed so insignificant... And this was just a moment in our prayer meeting this morning. Valerie took out a watch that's been broken for weeks. And she said, this watch has been broken for six weeks, was it? But she says, I feel like God is saying, this is the moment. This is the moment. There's there's something on this church and this moment. And you know, there's two words, and I'm conscious of time. There's two words in Greek for time, chronos which is chronological, it's just your regular time. And then there's kairos. Most of you will know this. Kairos is a moment of divine opportunity. It's a moment where in the chronos, in the 24-7, there's a moment where God steps in and, and there's just that moment of opportunity that you can seize, that divine moment, that opportunity, that, that, thing, that, 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 that thing that God puts before you and you can take it or you can leave it. And if you take it or if you leave it, your life will change for the good or for the worse. And I think many of us have those moments. I think some of us are in them right now, actually, that there's moments of divine opportunity, but fear is holding us back because we're comfortable and secure where we are. Or we're being held back by the opinions around us. Or we're being held back by the what-ifs. 
The Greek word for moment comes from atomus, from which we get the word atom, which is the smallest unit there is. In other words, those moments are the smallest things there are. But do you know what also we get from that word? Atomic. Those tiny moments create huge explosions. Those tiny things in our lives create huge differences. They have an impact beyond that which we could ever realize. Look at what happened next, verse 16. Saul's lookouts at Gibeah and Benjamin saw the army melting, melts away in all directions. Then Saul and all his men assembled and went to the battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're going to fight now. You can imagine, guys, we're going to fight. Arriving at the battle just a little bit late, Saul. I think the Lord's leading us now, guys, as they see all the enemies running away. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with the swords. The Hebrews who had been previously with the Philistines and had gone up with them to their camp went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. So on that day, it wasn't Jonathan who saved Israel, the Lord saved Israel. And the battle moved on. Jonathan's courage was contagious. And the world is looking for courageous people because your courage is contagious. The world is looking for people who will step up, step out and be different. And when you do that, it might feel like everybody is against you, but there will always be that one or two who are with you. I don't know why I've just had a flashback to that moment in Jerry Maguire where Tom Cruise does that big speech. And he says, is anybody with me? And the office just goes silent. And, you know, Rennie Zellweger goes, I'll go with you. And sometimes it feels like that, that you've done your big bold thing and you go, everybody, and go, nobody's with you but this one person. But that's all it takes. Let me read that quote again that I read earlier from Craig Rochelle. The difference between where you are and where God wants you to be may be the painful decision you refuse to make. You know, Jonathan's a hero in this story, but I think there's one other hero, and that's the armor bearer. We don't even get to know his name. He's an unnamed, unacclaimed hero. But look at what he tells Jonathan when Jonathan suggests his crazy plan. Do all that is in your mind. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. I wonder, was that just a little bit of encouragement that Jonathan needed to push him over the edge? And sometimes that's all we need. We don't need the crowd. We don't need the masses. We just need one person to say, I've got your back. You see, we don't need to be the Jonathan. We don't need to be the big name. We don't need to be the one on the platform. We can be the armor bearer who just says, I'm behind you. I'm for you. I support you. And I think if he had said, Jonathan, let's not do it. Jonathan probably went, you're probably right. But because he said, I'm with you, heart and soul, this was not just a half-hearted commitment. This was his life on the line. We need people who are willing to stand us and go, if you go down, I'm going down with you. If you fall, I'm falling. Like Ruth said to Naomi, I am with you, heart and soul. Proverbs 18.24, a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Not everyone can be a Jonathan, but you can be an armor bearer. You know, I stand up here every week and I preach and I pontificate and I do all that I do I'm not the hero guys 
I drove into this car park today and I counted. There were 19 cars here before me. And it wasn't because I was late, by the way. <laughs> I promise. It was just 10-ish. But there were 19 cars here before me, which tells me there were 19 people, 19 couples, 19 families who were here before I was this morning. If I hadn't shown up this morning, somebody else can preach. If the worship band don't show up, you can't sing. If the welcome team don't show up, there's nobody to welcome you. If the tea and coffee people don't show up, if the visual people don't show up, this does not happen. Don't always look for the heroes at the front. Look for the heroes behind the heroes. (laughs) Look for the people who aren't the platform, the people who don't get named, because they're the real heroes often. The people who serve and support, who step out from being a spectator and get in the game. You know, when we meet Jesus, he's not going to say to you, well listened, or well talked, or well prayed, or well thought, or well, but he is going to say, well It's what we do or don't do. Those moments that shape our lives and determine our destiny. And I want to finish with a quote that I read this week. Quit living as if the purpose of life is to arrive safely at death. Set God-sized goals. Pursue God-ordained passions. Go after a dream that is destined to fail without divine intervention. Keep asking questions. Keep making mistakes. Keep seeking God. Stop pointing out problems and become part of the solution. Stop repeating the past and start creating the future. Stop playing it safe and start taking risks. Expand your horizon. Accumulate experiences. Find every excuse you can to celebrate everything you can. Live like today is the first day and the last day of your life. Don't let what's wrong with you keep you from worshipping what's right with God. Burn sinful bridges. Blaze new trails. Worry less about what people think and more about what God thinks. Don't try to be who you're not. Laugh at yourself. Don't make a living, make a life. Don't let fear dictate your decisions. Quit making excuses. Quit playing defense. Quit holding out. Quit holding back. Quit running away. And quit putting eight-foot ceilings on what God can do.